when an inquirer about Zen came to a master, often, you know, they approach a Zen master with a kind of key question. What is the fundamental principle of Buddhism? Or why did the bearded barbarian come from the West? Because Zen is supposed to have been brought into China by a Hindu named Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma is always represented as having a huge bushy beard and very fierce eyes. Now, Bodhidharma always insisted that he had nothing to teach. And so, why did he come? That's one of the fundamental questions. You might say to me, I've often said uh, when I'm giving a lecture, I'm not trying to improve you. I'm not trying to uh, persuade you to a certain point of view. That is to say, like a preacher would convert somebody. In fact, I have nothing to tell you at all. Because were I to presume that I had something to tell you, I would be like a person who picked your pocket and sold you your own watch. So you might say, then, why do I talk? You might ask the sky, why are you blue? The clouds, why do you float around? birds, why do you sing? And we've been busy trying to invent explanations for all this. So there's this great Zen saying, one of the old masters said, when I was a young man and knew nothing of Buddhism, mountains were mountains and waters were waters. But when I began to understand a little Buddhism, mountains were no longer mountains and waters no longer waters. In other words, when one starts scientific and philosophical inquiries, everything gets explained away in terms of its causes or other things that go with it. Or one sees that all the things in the world, what we think are separate things, are as things illusions. There is nothing separate. So, but he said at the end, but when I had thoroughly understood Mountains were mountains, and waters are waters. So, this is what's called direct pointing. A Zen master was once talking with me, and he said, when water goes out of the wash basin down the drain, does it go clockwise or anti-clockwise? And this was all phrased in the middle of a very ordinary conversation. And, you know, it just seemed like a speculative question. And I said, oh, it might go either. He said, no, like this. Now he said, which came the first, egg or hen? I said, tuk, 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 tuk. Now, he said, that's the point. <laughs> now, it is saying too much, I warn you, to say that Zen is trying to point to the physical universe so that you can look at it without forming ideas about it. That is saying too much, but it is the general idea. It's in the direction of being the right idea.
Zen people speak of the virtue of what they call mushin, which means no mind, or munen, no thought. That red lantern says munen on it, no thought. This is not an anti-intellectual attitude. The ordinary simple person is just as bamboozled by thinking as a university professor. You can think intellectually in a no-think way. That's the art. It doesn't mean not to have any thoughts at all. It means not to be fooled by thoughts, not to be hypnotized by the forms of speech and uh, images that we have for the world, not to be hypnotized by them into thinking that that is the way the world really is. So if I say this is a fan, it isn't. To begin with, fan is a noise. And this doesn't make the noise fan, but just whoosh. But it can be many other things than a fan. It could be a back scratcher. Very well. All sorts of things. Don't let words limit the possibilities of life. Actually, this fan has an inscription on it written by a Zen master who is a hundred years old. And it says, I don't understand, I don't know anything about it. So that goes back to the story of Bodhidharma, that when he first came to China, sometime a little before 500 AD, he was interviewed by the Emperor Wu of Liang. The Emperor was a great patron of Buddhism and said, we have caused many monasteries to be built, monks and nuns to be ordained, and the scriptures to be translated into Chinese. What is the merit of this? And Bodhidharma said, no merit whatever. Well, that really set the emperor back because the popular understanding of Buddhism is that you do good things like that, religious things, and you acquire merit. And this leads you to better better lives in the future so that you will eventually become liberated. And so his, he was completely set back. So he said, well, what is the first principle of the holy doctrine? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness and nothing holy. Or in vast emptiness, there is nothing holy. So the emperor said, who is it then that stands before us? The implication being, aren't you supposed to be a holy man? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. So the poem says, plucking flowers to which the butterflies come, Bodhidharma says, I don't know. And another poem like it, if you want to know where the flowers come from, even the god of spring doesn't know. So, Anybody who says that he knows what Zen is, is a fraud. Nobody knows. Just like you don't know who you are. 
all this business about your name and your accomplishments, your certificates, what your friends say about you. You know very well that's not you. But the problem to know who you are is the problem of smelling your own nose. When the great Japanese master Dogen came back from China in about the year 1200 to bring his school of Zen into Japan, they asked him, what did you learn in China? He said, the eyes are horizontal, the nose is perpendicular. This man went on to write a tremendous book about Zen. They're so contradictory, these people. Don't expect consistency out of the Zen master. Big, big book called the Shobo Genzo. I talked with the Zen master about this book in Japan. And he said, oh, he said, that's a terrible book. It explains everything so clearly. It gives the show away. You don't need any book for Zen. So you see, it is this kind of way of going about things, this method of Zen, that has so fascinated the West. And everybody who, who reads about Zen wonders if somehow, you see, this understanding is right under your nose. You know how it is, sometimes you get a crowd of people to come into a room and you put something in the room that's absurd. Like suppose there was a balloon floating on the ceiling. People could come in and not notice it at all. Or, uh, you know, somebody puts on something weird, some kind of a funny necktie or something. And you say to a person, well, haven't you noticed? <laughs> a woman in a new dress, you know? Haven't you noticed? I said, well, what, what, what is it? What, what, what? No, it's right under your nose. They're staring you in the face, but you don't see it. And Zen is exactly like that. It is very obvious. The master Bokuju was asked, we have to dress and eat every day, and how do we escape from all that? In other words, how do we get out of routine? And he said, we dress, we eat. He said, I don't understand. Bokuju said, if you don't understand, put on your clothes and eat your food. <laughs> Another Zen master in quite recent times was interviewing a student. You see, all these stories I'm telling you are connected. And what I want you to do is to grasp intuitively the connection. Was uh, interviewing a student, a Western student. And he said, um, get up and walk across the room. He got up and walked and came back and said, where are your footprints? Another monk asked Joshu, what is the way? Tao, Chinese, the Tao. He said, your everyday mind is the way. How do you get into accord with it? He said, when you try to accord, you deviate. So, 
here is this extraordinary phenomenon. Now let me say, having presented you with all these fireworks, let me say a few sober things about Zen as a historical phenomenon. Zen is a subdivision of Mahayana Buddhism. And as you know, that is the school of Buddhism which is concerned with realizing Buddha nature in this world. Not necessarily by going off to the mountains or by renouncing family life, everyday life, etc., etc., as if that were an entanglement, but realizing in the midst of life the possibility of becoming a Buddha. And uh, so the great ideal personality of Mahayana Buddhism is the Bodhisattva, a word now applied to somebody who has attained nirvana, but instead of disappearing, comes back in many, many guises. There's a famous painting of one of the Bodhisattvas in the form of a prostitute. And Bodhisattvas in Zen art are often represented as bums. There's the beautiful one over there, painted by Sengai, of the bum Hote, or Putai in Chinese, who's always immensely fat. And he's saying, Buddha is dead. Maitreya, who is supposed to be the next Buddha, hasn't come yet. I had a wonderful sleep and didn't even dream about Confucius. And he's just stretching and yawning wakes up. So Zen is Mahayana, Indian Mahayana Buddhism translated into Chinese and therefore deeply influenced by Taoism and Confucianism. Zen monks brought Confucian ideas to Japan. And the Origins of Zen lie actually around the year 414, at which time a great Hindu scholar by the name of Kumarajiva was translating with a group of assistants the Buddhist sutras into Chinese. One of his students taught that all beings whatsoever have the capacity to become Buddha become enlightened. Even rocks and stones and that even heretics and evil doers have the Buddha nature or Buddha potentiality in them. And everybody said he was a dreadful heretic. But then a text called the Nirvana Sutra came from India which said precisely that. So everybody had to admit that this man was right. He also began to teach that awakening must be instantaneous. It's a kind of all-or-nothing state. I don't mean that there aren't degrees of its intensity, but once you see the principle, you see the whole thing. As they say, when the bottom falls out of the bucket, all the water goes together. Those men then promulgated the way of sudden awakening. Bodhidharma came later and he is supposed in legend to have been followed
by a line of six patriarchs, of which he was the first. The second was named Eka, I'm using the Japanese pronunciation, who was formerly a general of the army. Then the third was Sosan, who wrote the Shinjinmei, which is the most marvelous little summary of Buddhism in verse. And so on till they came to Eno, the sixth patriarch. You know perhaps more familiarly his Chinese name, Huinang. He died in 715 AD. He's the real founder of Chinese Zen. The man who synthesized the whole thing and was the, at least his collected discourses, are contained in what is called the Platform Sutra. And any student of Zen should read the Platform Sutra. But Eno really fused Zen with the Chinese way of doing things. And he emphasized very thoroughly, do not think you are going to attain Buddhahood by sitting down all day and keeping your mind blank. Because a lot of those students who practiced dhyana, which is the Sanskrit for Chan, which is the Chinese for Zen, which is in turn Japanese, means meditation, or contemplation perhaps would be a better translation in English. And everybody thought that the proper way to contemplate was to be as still as possible. But according to Zen, that is to be a stone Buddha instead of a living Buddha. Now I can knock a stone Buddha on the head, clunk, and it has no feelings. And so it's a stone Buddha. There was a famous Zen master called Tanka, who went to a little lonely temple on a freezing cold night. And he took the Buddha image, one of the Buddha images off the altar, split it up and made a fire. And when the attendant of the temple came in in the morning, he was horrified. He broke at the image and Tanka took his stick and started raking in the ashes. And the temple priest said, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for the sali, that is to say the jewels that are supposed to be found in the body of a genuine Buddha when he's cremated. So the priest said, you couldn't expect to find sali from a wooden Buddha. In that case, said Tanko, let me have that other Buddha for my fire. <laughs> That's, you see, the difference between living Buddha and stone Buddha. But a person who thinks that in order to be awakened, you have to be heartless, to have no emotions, no feelings, that you couldn't possibly lose your temper or get angry or feel annoyed or depressed. Those people haven't got the right idea at all. If that's your ideal, said Eno, you might just as well be a block of wood or a piece of stone. What he wanted you to understand is that your real mind, while all those emotions are going on, is imperturbable. Just like when you move your hand through the sky, you don't leave a track. The birds don't stain the blue when they pass by. And when the water reflects the image of the geese, the reflection doesn't stick there. So to be pure-minded in the Zen way, or clear-minded is a better way of translating it, is not to have no thoughts, 
It's not a question of not thinking about dirty things. One great master of the Tang Dynasty, when asked, what is Buddha? Believe it or not, answered, a dried turd. So it's not that kind of purity. It is purity, clarity, in the sense that your mind isn't sticky. You don't harbor grievances. You don't be attached to the past. You go with it, with life. Life is flowing all the time. That is the Tao, the flow of life. You are going along with it whether you want to or not. You're like people in a stream. You can swim against the stream, but you'll still be moved along by it. And all you'll do is wear yourself out in futility. But if you swim with the stream, the whole strength of the stream is yours. Of course, the difficulty that so many of us have is finding out which way the stream is going. But suddenly, as it goes, all the past vanishes, the future has not yet arrived, and there is only one place to be, which is here and now. And there is no way of being anywhere else, none whatever. If you understand that thoroughly, your task is finished. You then become instantaneous and also momentous. So this was Eno's principle. As I said, he died in 715 and he left five very great disciples who taught substantially the same sort of thing. But as things go, then these disciples had disciples, and those disciples had disciples, and there's a genealogy. And Zen broke into what are called five houses. And these, uh, some of them didn't go on. Zen went on in two main forms. One is called, by the Japanese, Rinzai Zen, after the great master Rinzai who lived towards the end of the ninth century. And the Soto school comes from another line and they have a slightly different emphasis. Soto is more serene in its approach, Rinzai more gutsy. Uh, Rinzai people use the koan method in Zen study, Soto people don't, at least not in the same way. But this period between the death of the sixth patriarch, Eno, and about the year 1000 is the golden age of Zen. This, these were the really formative years. And after that, Zen began to decline in China. It became mixed up with other forms of Buddhism and it suffered the fate of many, many forms of meditation type or yoga type discipline. It got a little bit sidetracked into occult and psychic matters. What are called in Buddhism, Siddhi, or the development of supernormal powers. 
For Zen, this is completely beside the point. But it got involved with Chinese alchemy, with Taoistic alchemy, and all sorts of foolishness in that direction. But a very strong strain of Zen went to Japan, the first being in about 1130, the monk Eisai, and then about 1200, the monk I told you about, Dogen, who founded the great, beautiful, gorgeous, galoptious monastery at Eheji, which exists to this day. Now, in this golden age of Chinese Zen, the main method of study was walking Zen rather than sitting Zen. All monks were great travelers and they walked for miles and miles through fields and mountains visiting temples to see if they could find a master who would cause their spark to flash get what is called in Mandarin Wu, or in Japanese Satori, or in Cantonese <clears throat> This always rather fascinates me, the way this character is written. The word I in Chinese is sometimes represented by this right-hand side of the character alone. Five mouths, five senses. This one means your mind or heart, the heart-mind, shin. Now when we say well, something very surprising happened, my heart came into my mouth. Here it comes into all five. So this character means awakening. It's the same in a way as the Sanskrit bodhi, awakening from the illusion of being a separate ego locked up in a bag of skin discovering that you are the whole universe. And of course, if you do discover that, and you do see into it all of a sudden, it's a shock, because your whole common sense is turned directly inside out. Everything is the same as you've always seen it, but completely different. Because you know who you are. You know that, uh, what the devil were you worrying about? What was all that fuss? What was all that to do? Well, you see, it was part of the game. Everything from one point of view is fuss and to do, to do, to do. What is there to do? But when you wake up, you see, and discover that all this to do wasn't you, what you thought was you, but was the entire works, which we could just call it, that you're it and it is it, everything is it and it does all things that are done then that is a great surprise but it sounds tasteless it sounds empty it sounds void because if I say well you're all it that is a statement without the slightest logical sense because we don't know what is it unless there's something that isn't it but if it's both all is's and all isn'ts then we can't think about it Nevertheless, it is highly possible to see that that's so in a way that's so vivid it brings your heart into all your five mouths.
Out of Your Mind now continues with the next lecture from the World as Just So lecture series. In this morning's talk, I was going into some of the fundamental features of Zen. And today, I want to concentrate on that aspect of Zen practice, which is called in Chinese, Mo Chi Chu, or going straight ahead. A master who was once asked, what is the Tao, the way, replied, walk on. Actually, go, as we say, go man, go. Go, go. <laughs> and it is this aspect of Zen which is what is truly understood by detachment or having a mind that isn't sticky and that isn't stopped at any point in its whole working. To be stopped at a certain point is what is called having a doubt. As when one fumbles or wobbles or hesitates about something, trying to find the right solution for the circumstances by thinking it out in a situation where there really is no time to think it out. So that when a Zen teacher asks his disciple a question, he expects an immediate answer as it were, without thought or premeditation. They speak in Zen, they use a phrase, to have a mind of no deliberation. And they also speak of a kind of person, a man who doesn't depend on anything. That is to say, on a formula, on a theory, on a belief, to govern his action. And this person who doesn't stick anywhere, is like Dante's image at the end of the Paradiso, where he says in the presence of the vision of God, but my volition now and my desires were moved as a wheel revolving evenly by love that moves the sun and other stars. And the image of the wheel, which is not too tight on its axle and not too loose, that is really with the axle, is the Zen principle of not being attached, not being sticky. It's very difficult for us to function in that way because we've been brought up to believe that there are two sides to ourselves. One, the animal side, and the other, the human and civilized side. And these are expressed in what Freud calls pleasure principle, which he classifies with the animal side, with the id, and the other, the reality principle, which he puts on the side of society and the superego. And man is so split that he is in a constant fight between these two. Theosophists sometimes speak of our having two selves, the higher self, which is spiritual, and the lower self, which is merely psychic the ego. 
and therefore the problem of life is to make the one self the higher one take charge of the lower as a rider takes charge of a horse but the problem that constantly arises is how do you know that what you think is your higher self isn't really your lower self in disguise when a thief is robbing a house and the police enter on the ground floor the thief goes up to the second floor and when the police follow up the stairs he goes higher and higher until at last he gets out to the rooftop and in the same way when one really feels oneself to be the lower self that is to say to be a separate ego and then the moralists come along they are of course the police and say you ought not to be selfish then the ego dissembles and tries to pretend that it's a, he's a good person after all and therefore one of the ways of doing this is for the ego to say I believe I have a higher self and I would say why do you believe that do you know the higher self no if I knew it I would behave differently but I'm trying to get there well why are you trying to get there well then the police wouldn't come around then the moralists wouldn't preach at then I could feel that I was doing my duty behaving as a proper member of society but all this is a great phony front if you don't know that there is a higher self and you believe that there is one on whose authority do you believe this you say oh such and such a teacher Buddha Jesus Shankara the Upanishads said that we have a higher self and I believe it Catholics sometimes say they believe their religion because they're told to and they have to be obedient the catechism starts out I mean the Baltimore catechism it starts out we are bound to believe that there is but one God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth etc and they make jokes about the Protestants and say they don't have real authority in the Protestant Church because everybody interprets the Bible according to his own opinion but we have an authoritative interpretation of the Bible but this always screens out the fact that it is fundamentally a matter of your own opinion that you accept the authority of the church to interpret the Bible you cannot escape in all matters of belief from opinion in other words it must become clear to you that you yourself create all the authorities you accept and if you create them in order to dissimulate in order to pretend that your motivations and your character are different that you would like them to be different this is the same old principle of the separate self trying to improve itself so that it will live longer or survive in the spiritual world or attain the riches and the progress of enlightenment and the whole thing is phony so in Zen a duality between higher self and lower self is not made because if you believe in the higher self this is a simple 
trick of the lower self. If you believe that there is no really lower self, that there is only the higher self, but that somehow or other the higher self has to shine through, the very fact that you think that it has to try to shine through still gives validity to the existence of a lower self. If you think you have a lower self or an ego to get rid of and then you fight against it, nothing strengthens the delusion that it exists more than that. So this tremendous schizophrenia in human beings of thinking that they are rider and horse, soul in command of body, or will in command of passions, wrestling with them, all that kind of split thinking simply aggravates the problem and we get more and more split and so we have all sorts of people engaged in an interior conflict which they will never never resolve because the true self either you know it or you don't. If you do know it, then you know it's the only one and the other so-called lower self just ceases to be a problem. It becomes something like a mirage and you don't go around hitting at mirages with a stick or trying to put reins on them. You just know that they're mirages and walk straight through them. But if you are brought up to believe yourself split, I remember my mother used to say to me when I did naughty things, she said, Alan, that's not like you. <laughs> so I had, you know, some conception of what was like me in my better moments, that is to say, in the moments when I remembered what my mother would like me to do. And so that split is implanted in us all. And because of our being split-minded, we are always dithering. Is the choice that I'm about to make of the higher self or of the lower self? Is it of the spirit or is it of the flesh? Is the word that I have received of the Lord or is it of the devil? And nobody can decide. Because if you knew how to choose, you wouldn't have to. In the so-called moral rearmament movement, which is a very significant title, you test your messages that you get from God in your quiet time by comparing them with standards of absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute love, and so on. But of course, if you knew what those things were, you wouldn't have to test. You would know immediately. And do you know what those things are? The more one thinks about the question, what would absolute love be? Supposing I could set myself the ideal of being absolutely loving to everybody, what would that imply in terms of conduct? Well, you could think about that till all is blue, because you could never get to the answer. The problems of life are so subtle that to try to solve them with vague principles, as if those vague principles were specific instructions, is completely impossible. So, it is important to overcome 
split-mindedness. But what is the way? Where can you start from if you're already split? A Taoist saying is that when the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. So what are you to do? How can you get off it and get moving? Fundamentally, of course, you have to be surprised into it. Winthrop Sargent, not so long ago, interviewed a great Zen priest in Kyoto who posed to him the question, who are you? And he said, well, I'm Winthrop Sargent. And the priest laughed. No, he said, I don't mean that. I mean, who are you really? Well, then he went into all sorts of abstractions about his being a particular human being and so on. He was a journalist and so on. And the priest just laughed and said, no. Then the, the, he, the priest just tossed off the conversation and a little later made a joke. And Sergeant laughed. And he said, there you are. There was an army officer who once came to a Zen master and said, I have heard a story about a man who kept a goose in a bottle. And it was uh, growing very rapidly. And he didn't want to break the bottle and he didn't want to hurt the goose. So how would he get it out? The Zen master didn't answer the question at all, but simply said, changed the subject. Finally, the officer got up to leave. And uh, he went over to the door and suddenly the Zen master called out, Oh, officer. And he turned around and said, Yes. The master said, there, it's out. <laughs> so in the same way, if I say to you, good morning, you say, good morning. Nice day, isn't it? Yes. Or if I hit you, you know, boom, you say, ouch. And you don't stop to hesitate to give these answers and these responses. You don't think about it when I say good morning. Unless you're a psychiatrist, what could I be, <laughs> what could I be meaning? So you, you respond. So in exactly the same way, that kind of response, which doesn't have to be a deliberate response, a response of a no deliberating mind, is a response of a Buddha mind or an unattached mind. But you must not imagine that this is necessarily a quick response. Because if you get hung up on the idea of responding quickly, the idea of quickness will be itself a form of obstruction. Very often when Dr. Suzuki is asked a question, very complicated question by some philosophy major at Columbia when he's giving lectures there, he's silent for a full minute and then says, yes. <laughs> And this is exactly as spontaneous a response as it would be if uh, he had answered immediately. Because during the period of silence, he is not fishing around to think of something to say. He is not at all embarrassed at being silent or at not knowing the answer. So if you don't know the answer, you can be silent. If nobody asks a question, you can be silent. There's no need to be embarrassed about it or to be stuck on it. But you cannot overcome 
being stuck. If you think that somehow you would be guilty if you were stuck. When you are perfectly free to feel stuck or not stuck, then you're unstuck. Because actually, nothing can stick on the real mind and you will find this out if you watch the flow of your thoughts. There is an expression in Chinese which means the flow of thoughts or what we call in literary criticism stream of consciousness and they put the character for thought three times. Nyan, nyan, nyan. And so you will notice that thought follows thought follows thought when you are just ruminating. And those thoughts arise and go like waves on the water. All the time they come and go. And when they go, they are as if they had never been here. So actually this shows your mind doesn't stick. Really. You can get the illusion of it sticking by, for example, cycling the same succession of thoughts over and over again. And that gives a sense of permanence in the same way as when you revolve a cigarette butt in the dark, you get the illusion of there being a solid circle, although there is only the single point of fire. And it is from this connecting of thoughts that we get the sensation that behind our thoughts there is a thinker who controls them and experiences them. Although the notion that there is a thinker is just one member in the stream of thoughts. For example, if you get a certain kind of rhythm that goes diggy 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 boop diggy 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 boop diggy 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 boop diggy 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 boop the boop is a part of the rhythm but it can be used as a cue so you get in relation to diggy 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 boop you get thought 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 thinker thought 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 thinker and if this happens regularly enough and long enough you get the illusion of there being uh, someone who thinks apart from the stream of thoughts which come and go the stream of experiences and we use such absurd phrases not only as thinking our thoughts but feeling our feelings, seeing sights and hearing sounds. But you must understand it is perfectly obvious that seeing a sight is seeing, hearing a sound is hearing, feeling a feeling is feeling. So in the same way, thinking a thought is thinking. But you get split-minded, you see, and so you uh, get I and me and the I who ought to or must control me uh, as uh, a sensation of some real entity that stands aside from thoughts and uh, chooses among them, controls them, regulates them, uh, and so on. Actually, this is a way to have one's thoughts not controlled. The more there is this duality of the separate thinker standing aside from the thoughts, the separate feeler watching or feeling the feelings, the more the stream of feelings is coaxed into self-protective activity. 
into getting more and more like a stock record, the purposes of which are to protect and to aggrandize and enlarge the status of the supposed thinker. When uh, Joshu, who was a Tang Dynasty Zen master, was asked, uh, he had made some reference to the enlightened mind being like a mind of a child. And he said, well, what is the mind of a child? And he said, a ball in a mountain stream. Why? Thought follows thought instantaneously without interruption. So the saying, walk or sit as you will, but whatever you do, don't wobble. Now, we can see this very clearly from confusions we can get into in activity. I have just said we can see this very clearly from confusions we get into in activity. What kind of a statement is that? When I raise the question, what kind of a statement was it that I just made, I'm beginning to talk about talking. And one can do that, provided you don't try to do it while you're making the original statement. If I want to say something about what I've just said, then I must do it later, mustn't I? But not at the same time. I cannot say, you are a fool, and at the same time say, I'm giving you an insult in so many words. I cannot say, or in mathematics, I cannot write down a certain equation. And as I'm writing it down, simultaneously state what kind of an equation this is. Unless, of course, I invent an exceedingly complex language which talks about itself as it goes along. But in the ordinary way, people get completely mixed up by that. In the middle of being about to say to somebody anything, you start to think about whether this is the right thing to say, and you start wobbling. You get, in other words, too much feedback. And too much feedback makes any mechanism go crazy. So in the same way, when you are very, very aware of a difference between the deeds and the doer and the doer while doing the deeds is always sort of commenting on them. the doer never really gets with it in other words you are about to strike a nail and you wonder as you are about to hit it is this the right place to put it and so you probably hit your thumbnail instead of the nail because you don't go right through with hitting that nail. This is not saying, let me mark this again, it is not saying that there should be no criticism of thought. But if you criticize thought while thinking, as if there were a critic thinker standing aside from the stream of thought, then you get all balled up. And that is exactly what happens in the process of attachment, or what are called in Buddhist klesha, which mean disturbing confusions of the mind.
and you see this kind of confusion is something which, to which the human organism is peculiarly liable. Because the human organism has language, has, you see, thinking is silent language. And I mean language in the most inclusive sense of the word, not only words, but also images and numbers, notation. Just because then we can talk about anything, we can talk about talking, we can talk about thinking, we can talk about ourselves, as if we could stand aside and say, said I to myself, said I. All we are actually doing is making a second thought, or thought stream, which comments on the one that went before. And then pretending that the second stream is a different stream than the first. That's because there are built into our minds all kinds of phony images about memory. We think, for example, of memory by analogy with engraving. In order to remember something, we write it down. And so we have a flat and stable piece of paper and we make marks on it with a pencil and they stay there. So we begin to think, is mental memory something of the same kind? Is there something stable upon which the passage of thoughts makes an impression? We say, he impressed me very much. This was a lasting impression on my mind. As if we were tablets. Indeed, the philosopher Locke used the expression tabula rasa or clean slate to describe the mind of a child. This is a mind which has not yet collected any memories, as if there were some sort of surface which accumulated these things and preserved them, and that's me. But you see, this superstition is related to a much more ancient superstition, that the world consists of two elements, one of which is stuff and the other of which is form. This is a myth based on a model of the world which is fundamentally ceramic. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. And so there is a stuff and so there are forms engraved in it or imposed on it or stamped on it like a seal is stamped on wax. What is stuff like apart from form? What is form like apart from stuff? All those problems which have bothered people for centuries are based on asking the question in the wrong way, on having used the wrong image for the process. Actually, uh, since nobody ever saw a piece of shapeless stuff and nobody ever saw a piece of stuffless shape, the whole thing really is saying that uh, they are the same. And uh, there isn't any necessity even to think of a difference between them. Even the contrasting words, form and substance, or form and matter, are a nuisance. There is process. There is the flow of thought. And the flow of thought doesn't have to happen to anyone. Experience does not have to beat upon an experiencer. There is all the time simply the one stream going on 
and we are convinced that we stand aside from it and observe it because we've been brought up that way. But you know, in your stream of thought and experience, I am an object and a very fleeting and passing one. And consequently also in my stream of experience, you also are people who come and go. We are all, you see, living in the same world. We think there is me and there is an external world around me, but I am in your external world and you are in my external world. And if you think about that, you see we are all in one world, going along together. There isn't really the internal and the external. There is simply the process. It's very important to get rid of that illusion of duality between the thinker and the thought. So find out who is the thinker behind the thoughts? Who is the real genuine you? And so one of the methods that is used is shouting. The Zen master would say to a student, now, I want to hear you. I want to hear you say the word mu and really mean it. Because I want to hear not just the sound, but the person who says it. Now produce for me that. He says, mu, and the Zen teacher says, no, no, not yet, mu. And he says, it's only coming from your throat. I want to hear your belly. And always, you see, it'll never come while the person is trying to make a differentiation between a true move and a false move. <laughs> to act with confidence, you just do it. But since people are not used to that, it is necessary to set up protected situations in which it can be done. If we just in the ordinary way of social intercourse acted without deliberation, we would get into amazing confusions. As when people say, always speak the truth never tell a white lie. And they say exactly what is true and uh, what they think about other people. Well, they can raise a great deal of trouble. But the experience of Zen has been that there should be a kind of enclosure in which this kind of behavior can be done until the people are expert in it and know how to apply it in all situations. Session 7 of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening, from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with Session 8. A lecture on Zen is always something in the nature of a hoax, because it really does deal with a domain of experience that can't be talked about. But one must remember at the same time that there's really nothing at all that can be 
talked about adequately. And the whole art of poetry is to say what can't be said. So every poet, every artist, feels when he gets to the end of his work that there's something absolutely essential that was left out. So Zen has always described itself as a finger pointing at the moon. In the Sanskrit saying, Tattvamasi, that art thou, Zen is concerned with that. That, of course, is the word which is used for Brahman, the absolute reality in Hindu philosophy. And you're it, only in disguise, and disguised so well that you've forgotten it. But unfortunately, ideas like the ultimate ground of being, the self, Brahman, ultimate reality, the great void, all that is very, very abstract talk. And Zen is concerned with a much more direct way of coming to an understanding of that, or thatness, as it's called, tathata, in Sanskrit. So Zen has been summed up in four statements. A direct transmission outside scriptures and apart from tradition. No dependence on words and letters. Direct pointing to the human mind and seeing into one's own nature and becoming Buddha. That is becoming enlightened awakened from the normal hypnosis under which almost all of us go round like somnambules. It's extraordinary how much interest has existed in Zen in the United States, especially in the years since the war with Japan. And naturally, I've often meditated on the reasons for this interest. I think, first of all, the appeal of Zen lies in its unusual quality of humor. Religions aren't, as a rule, humorous in any way. Religions are serious. And when one looks at Zen art and reads Zen stories, it is quite apparent that something is going on here which isn't serious in the ordinary sense, however sincere it may be. The next thing I think that has appealed to Westerners is that Zen has no doctrines. There is nothing you have to believe, and it doesn't moralize at you very much. It's not particularly concerned with morals at all. It's a field of inquiry, rather like physics, and you don't expect a physicist to discuss authoritatively about morals, even though as a human being he has moral interests and problems. But as a physicist, he is not a moral authority. Or if you go to an oculist or ophthalmologist to have your eyes adjusted, that is so you can see clearly. And Zen is spiritual ophthalmology. Another thing that appeals very much to Western students about Zen 
is that they've read their Zen from Suzuki and from some of my writings and from R.H. Blythe and these people present a rather different kind of Zen from that which you will find today in Japan. They present what is essentially early Chinese Zen from the old writings ranging from about shortly before 700 AD to 1000 AD. And that Zen has a very different flavor from modern Japanese Zen. And so, of course, many of the people who go to study Zen in Japan disapprove of Dr. Suzuki thoroughly, and also naturally of my exposition of Zen, because we don't make a great fetish of studying Zen by sitting. In Japan today, they sit and they sit and they sit. R.H. Blythe asked the Zen master, what would you do if you had only one half hour left to live? And he said, I would do Zazen, which means he would sit like the Buddha here and uh, practice meditation. And Blythe had given him several choices. Would you like to listen to your favorite music? Would you have a dinner? Would you get drunk? Would you like the company of a beautiful woman? Uh, would you take a walk? What would you do? Or would you just go on with your daily business as if nothing was going to happen? In other words, would you wind up your watch? So he was very disappointed in this answer. And he said, you know, sitting is only one way of doing Zen. Buddhism speaks of the four dignities of man. Walking, standing, sitting and lying. And so Zazen is simply the Japanese word for sitting Zen. There must also be walking Zen, standing Zen and lying Zen. You should know, for example, how to sleep in a Zen way. That means to sleep thoroughly. Zen has been described as when hungry eat, when tired sleep. And when the student got that description, he said, well, doesn't everybody do that? And the master said, they don't. When hungry, they don't just eat, but think of 10,000 things. When tired, they don't just sleep, but dream innumerable dreams. So in a sense, this sounds like the old Western truism. Whatever you, your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But that's not the same thing as Zen. A lot of people like to see if they could sum up Zen in that way, in the Latin motto of the school I used to go to in England, Age dum agis, act when you act while you act. There's a famous story which beautifully illustrates the current relationships between East and West. Paul Reps, who wrote uh, or rather drew a lovely book called Zen Telegrams, once asked a Zen master to sum up Buddhism in one phrase. And he said, don't act, but act. So Reps was simply delighted because he thought the master had said, don't act, but act. And that, of course, would be the Taoist principle of Wu Wei, of action in the spirit of not being separate from the world, realizing so fully that you are the universe too, that your action on it is not an interference, but a, an expression 
of the totality. But the master's English was very bad indeed, and Paul Reps had misunderstood him. He had said, don't act, bad act. <laughs> and you know, that is the sort of attitude that all clergy develop over the centuries. You know how it is when you go to church, if you do. So often the sermon boils down to, my dear people, you ought to be good. And everybody knows that, but hardly anybody knows how. Or even what good is. The fascination of Zen to the West is that it promises a sudden insight into something that is always supposed to take years and years and years. The psychoanalysts, if you're mixed up, they tell you, the troubles you've got yourself into over all these years can't be undone in a day. And therefore it will take many, many sessions, maybe twice a week for several years for you to get straightened out. The Christians say that if you embark on a path of spiritual discipline, you get yourself a spiritual director and uh, submit yourself to the will of God, but you may not get into the high states of contemplative prayer for very many years. The Hindus, the Vedanta Society people, the Buddhists also say will require many long years of meditation, very hard concentration, very difficult practice, and stern discipline. And then maybe you will make enough progress in this life to become a monk in your next life then you'll make enough progress to enter some of the preliminary stages leading to Buddhahood, but it's all likely to take you many, many incarnations. But when this artist Hasegawa was asked, how does one see into Zen? He said, it may take you three seconds. It may take you 30 years. I mean that. And so you see, there is always the possibility that it may take only three seconds. Zen literature abounds with stories, you see, in which there's a dialogue, or what is called in Japanese mondo, which means question-answer, between a Zen teacher and his student. And these dialogues are fascinatingly incomprehensible. But it always seems to be that at the end of this swift interchange, the student gets the point. Sometimes he doesn't. I gave a book of these dialogues once to a friend of mine who was deeply interested in Eastern philosophy. He said, I haven't understood a word of it, but it's cheered me up enormously. <laughs> so this book called the Mumonkan, which means the barrier with no gate, or the gateless gate contains such stories as the student, I say student rather than monk, because Zen students are not monks in our sense of the word monk. Our monks take life vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. And to make the grade, you're expected to spend your whole life in the monastic state. But I call the Zen monk a student because he's more like a student in a theological seminary 
He may stay much longer than the usual three years. He may stay 30 years or so. But it's always uh, possible for him to leave with dignity and to graduate and to go into lay life or become a regular priest who keeps charge of a temple, can get married and have a family. And uh, only very few graduates of a Zen monastery become Roshi. The Roshi means simply old teacher. That is the man in charge of the spiritual development of the students. So one of these students in the book says to the master Joshu, I have been here in this monastery for some time and I've had no instruction from you. The master said, have you had breakfast? Yes. Then go wash your bowl. And the monk was awakened. Now you may think that the moral of this story is uh, do the work that's nearest, though it's dull at wiles, helping when you meet them, lame dogs over styles. <laughs> <laughs> or that the bowl might be a symbol of the great void, the all-containing universe. And uh, probably the monk had washed it already because they immediately after eating in Japan and China in a monastery, they would take tea and pour it into the bowl and swill it around, wash it and wipe it out. So maybe he had already washed the bowl. And in that case, you might think that the master was saying, don't gild the lily. Don't, to use a real nice Zen phrase, don't put legs on a snake or a beard on a eunuch. No, the point of that story is so clear that that's what's difficult about it. And all these stories resemble jokes in this sense. A joke is told to make you laugh. When you get the point of a joke, you laugh spontaneously. But if the point has to be explained to you, you don't laugh so well, you force a laugh. There is some kind of sudden impact between the punchline and the laugh. And so in exactly the same way with these stories, there is expected to be something else than laughter which is sudden insight into the nature of being. Nature of being, that sounds very, again, very abstract. But it was, go wash your bowl. So, another story in this book concerns a master who said, when a cow walks out of the enclosure, the corral, the horns and head, the four legs and the body all get through, but not the tail. How is it that the tail can't get through? And nobody could answer this. Another story it tells of a certain master called Bai Zhang, who was so good that he had hundreds of students, and they couldn't all be housed in one monastery. So he had to find one of the students who could also be a master.
I want to start by re-emphasizing the point that what are called the religions of the East, and the ones we're discussing, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Chinese Taoism, they don't involve that you believe in anything specific. And they don't involve any idea of obedience to commandments from above. And they don't involve any uh, conformity to a specific ritual. Although they do have rituals, but their rituals vary from country to country and from time to time. Their objective is always not ideas, not doctrines, but a method. A method for the transformation of consciousness. That is to say, for a transformation of your sensation of who you are. And I emphasize the word sensation because it's the strongest word we have for feeling directly. When you put your hand on the corner of a table, you have a very definite feeling. And when you are aware of existing, you also have a definite feeling. But in the view of these methods or disciplines, the ordinary person's definite feeling of the way he exists and who he is, is a hallucination. To feel yourself as a separate ego, a source of action and awareness that is entirely separate and independent from the rest of the world, somehow locked up inside a bag of skin, is seen as a hallucination. That you are not a stranger in the earth that comes into this world either as a result of a natural fluke or uh, being a sort of spirit that comes from somewhere else altogether. But that you, in your fundamental existence, you are the total energy that constitutes this universe. Playing that it's you. Playing that it's this particular organism. And even playing that it's this particular person. Because the fundamental game of the world is a game of hide-and-seek. That is to say that the colossal reality, the energy that is everything, that is a unitary energy, that is one, plays at being many, at manifesting itself in all these particulars that we call you and 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 this and that and all around us and it's fundamentally a game and you can say that this goes really for all the systems that I'm talking about it's the basis of Hinduism of Buddhism and of Taoism this intuition now today we're going to talk about Buddhism Buddhism is an offshoot of Hinduism you could, in a way, call it a reform of Hinduism, or Hinduism stripped for export. It originates in northern India, close to the area that is now Nepal, 
shortly after 600 BC. There was a young prince by the name of Gotama Siddhartha who became the man we call the Buddha. Now the word Buddha is not a proper name, it's a title. And it's based on the Sanskrit root Buddh, B-U-D-H, which means to be awake. And so you could say the Buddha is the man who woke up from the dream of life as we ordinarily take it to be and found out who he was, who he is. It's curious that uh, this title was not something new. There was already in the whole complex of Hinduism the idea of Buddhas, of uh, awakened people. And curiously, they are ranked higher than gods. Because in the view of Hinduism, even the gods or the angels, the devas, are still bound on the wheel of the, uh, the sort of squirrel cage of going round and round and round in the pursuit of success. And the idea is that if you pursue something that you can call success, pleasure, good, virtue, which originally of course means strength, magical power, all these positive things, you are under illusion because the positive cannot exist without the negative. To be, you only know what to be is by contrast with not to be. So if we say, now, uh, there is a coin in the left hand, there is no coin in the right. And from this you get the idea of to be and not to be. And you can't have the one without the other. So if you try to pursue, to gain the positive and to deny, get rid of the negative, it's as if you were trying to arrange everything in this room so that it was all up and nothing was down. You can't do it. You set yourself an absolutely insoluble problem. Because the basis of life is spectrum. I'll consider the spectrum of colors. When you think of a spectrum, in what form do you think of it? Most people think of it as a ribbon, with red at one end and purple at the other. But the spectrum is actually a circle, because purple is the mixture of red and blue. It goes right round. And so in this way, all sensation, all feeling, all experience whatsoever is moving through spectra. You don't only have the spectrum of color, you have a spectrum of sound. You have various complex spectra of texture, of smell, of taste. 
and you're constantly operating through all the possible variations of experience. And it implies that you can't know one end of the spectrum without also knowing the other. So if you wanted, if say your favorite color is red, and you wanted only red, and you had to exclude therefore blue and purple, without blue and purple you can't have red. Behind, of course, all the various colors in the spectrum is the white light. And behind everything that we experience, all our various sensations of sound, of color, of shape, of touch, there's the white light. And I'm using the phrase, the white light, rather symbolically. I don't mean it literally. But there is common to all sensations, what you might call the basic sense. And if you explore back into your sensations and reduce them all to the basic sense, you're on your way to reality, to what underlies everything, to what is the ground of being the basic energy. And to the extent that you realize this, and know that you are it. You transcend, you overcome, you surpass the illusion that you are simply John Doe, Mary Smith, or what have you. So then, uh, the Buddha, as the man who woke up, is regarded as one Buddha among a potentiality of myriads of Buddhas. Everybody can be a Buddha. Everybody has in himself the capacity to wake up from the illusion of being simply this separate individual. The Buddha made his doctrine very easy to understand because in those days there wasn't very much writing being done and people committed things to memory. And so he put his doctrine or method in various formulae, which are very easy to remember. And I'm going to explain it in those terms so that you can remember it just as well. He, of course, practiced the various disciplines that were offered in the Hinduism of his time. But he found in a certain way that they had become unsatisfactory because they had overemphasized asceticism, had overemphasized putting up with as much pain as you can. There was a feeling, you see, that if the problem of life is pain, let, uh, let us suffer. And this is the root of the ascetics, you see, who lie on beds of nails, who hold a hand up forever and ever and ever, who eat only one banana a day, who uh, renounce sex, who uh, do all these weird things because they feel that if they head right into pain and don't become afraid of it but suffer as much pain as possible, they will by this method overcome the problem of pain and they will set themselves free from anxiety. There's a certain sense in that, as you can obviously see. 
Supposing, for example, you have absolutely no fear of pain. You have no anxieties, you have no hang-ups. How strong you would be. Nobody could stop you. You would have ultimate courage. But the Buddha was very subtle. He is really the first historical psychologist, the great psychologist, psychotherapist. He is very subtle because he saw that a person who is fighting pain, who is trying to get rid of pain, is still really fundamentally afraid of it. And therefore, the way of asceticism is not right. Equally, the way of hedonism, of seeking pleasure, is not right. So, the Buddha's doctrine is called the middle way, which is neither ascetic nor hedonistic. So it's summed up in what are called the four noble truths. And the first is called Dukkha. Dukkha means suffering in a very generalized sense. Uh, you could call it chronic frustration. And it is saying that life as lived by most people is dukkha. It is an attempt, in other words, to solve insoluble problems. Try to draw a square circle. You can't, because the problem itself is meaningless. Try to arrange the things in this room so that they're all up and none of them down. It is meaningless. Such a problem cannot ever be solved. So try to have light without dark or dark without light. It can never be solved. So the attempt to solve problems that are basically insoluble and to work at it through your whole life. That is Dukkha. Now, he went on to analyze this, that there are what he called three signs of being. The first is Dukkha itself, frustration. The second is Anitya. And this means, the, the, the letter A in Sanskrit at the beginning of a word is often the equivalent of our non. So, nitya means permanent. Anitya means impermanent. That every manifestation of life is impermanent. And therefore, uh, our quest to make things permanent, to straighten everything out, to get it fixed, is an impossible and insoluble problem. And therefore, we experience dukya, dukkha, or this sense of fundamental pain and frustration as a result of trying to make things permanent. And the third sign of being is called 
an Atman. Now, you know uh, from my talk on Hinduism that the word Atman means self. Anatman means therefore non-self. That there is in you no real ego. Now I've explained that already. I've explained in talking about Hinduism that the idea of the ego is a social institution. It has no physical reality. It is simply the ego is your symbol of yourself. Just as the word water is a noise which symbolizes a certain liquid reality, so the idea of the ego, the role you play, who you are, is not the same as your living organism. Your ego has absolutely nothing to do with the way you color your eyes shape your body circulate your blood that's the real you but it's certainly not your ego because you don't even know how it's done from the standpoint of your conscious attention so the idea of anatman is firstly that the ego is unreal there isn't one Now then, this then is the first truth. There is this situation that we have dukkha or frustration because we are fighting the changingness of things and because we don't realize that the ego, the I, is unreal. The second of the Four Noble Truths is then called Krishna. Krishna is a Sanskrit word again and is the root of our word thirst. And it's usually translated desire. But it is better translated clinging, grabbing. Or there's an excellent modern American slangy word, hang up. That is exactly what Krishna is, a hang up. Krishna is clutching, as for example, uh, what we call smother love. When uh, a mother is so afraid that her children may get into trouble, that she protects them excessively. And as a result of this, prevents them from growing. Or when, a, when lovers cling to each other excessively, and have to sign documents that they will curse and swear to love each other always. <laughs> they are in a state of Trishna. And this is the same thing as holding on to yourself so tightly that you strangle yourself. Now, so the, the second truth then about Trishna is that the cause of Dukkha is Trishna. Clinging is what makes suffering. If you don't recognize that this whole world is a phantasmagoria, an amazing illusion, a weaving of smoke, 
and uh, you, you try to hold on to it, you see, then you start suffering, seriously suffering. Krishna is in turn based upon avidya. The same negative, ah, vidya, from the root vid, means knowledge, as in the Latin video and the English vision. Avidya, therefore, is ignorance. Gnosis, gna, means, of course, to know. Knowledge is the same thing as gnosis in Greek. To know, so this is not to know, to ignore, to overlook. And uh, I explained in the first talk in this series how we ignore all kinds of things because we notice only what we think noteworthy and therefore our vision of everything is highly selective. We pick out certain things and say that's what's there just as we select and notice the figure rather than the background. Sometimes I draw this on the blackboard and ask the question, what have I drawn? What would you say? What have I drawn? A circle. Any other suggestions? Yeah, you're getting the point. <laughs> I've drawn a wall with a hole in it, you see. But ordinarily, um, you've been reading my books. <laughs> So, uh, but ordinarily people see the ball, the circle, the ring or whatever and never think of the background because they ignore the background just as one thinks that you can have pleasure without pain. You want pleasure the figure and don't realize that pain is the background. So avidya is this state of restricted consciousness, restricted attention, that moves through life unaware of the fact that to be implies not to be, and vice versa. So now the third noble truth is called nirvana. This word means blow out. Nira is a negative word again, like ah. Vana is blowing. So uh, it's a kind of um, uh, outblowing. Now, in breathing, you know that breath is life. The Greek word. Uh, you may pronounce it pneuma or pnefma, uh, is the same as spirit. And spirit means breath. In the book of Genesis, when God had made the clay figurine that was later to be Adam, he breathed the breath of life into its nostrils. And it became alive, because life is breath. But now, if you hold your breath, you lose it. He that would save his life will lose it. <laughs>
So breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, get as much air as you can, and Trishna, cling. And you lose it. So nirvana means breathe out. What a relief that was. <laughs> the sigh of relief. Let it go. Because it'll come back to you if you let it go. But if you don't let it go, you'll just suffocate. So a person in the state of nirvana is what we might call a blown out person. Like blow your mind. <laughs> let go. Don't cling. And then you're in the state of nirvana. And I re-emphasize the point. This is not, I, I, I'm not preaching, see? I'm not saying this is what you ought to do. I'm simply pointing out a state of affairs that is so. There's no moralism in this whatsoever. It's simply pointing out like, if you put your hand into the fire, you'll get burned. You can get burned if you want to. That's okay. But if you, it so happens that you don't want to get burned, and you don't put your hand in the fire. So in the same way, if you don't want to be in a state of anxiety all the time, and again I emphasize, if you like to be anxious, it's perfectly all right. If that's, see, Buddhism never hurries anyone on. They say, you've got all eternity through which to live in various forms. And therefore, you, you, you don't have just one life in which you've got to avoid eternal damnation. You can go running around the wheel and the rat race and play that game just as long as you want to, so long as you think it's fun. But if there comes a time when you don't think it's fun, you don't have to do it. So I wouldn't say to anyone who disagrees with me and who says, well, uh, I think we ought to engage the forces of evil in battle and put this world to right and so on and so forth and arrange everything in this world so that it's all up. Try it, please. Uh, it's perfectly okay. Go on doing that. <laughs>
are always on the raft. They're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on the raft. Uh, so the clergyman tends to turn into a ferryman who's always on the raft and never gets over to the other shore himself. Now something to be said for that because how are we going to get the raft back to the first shore to bring over the other people? See? Somebody has to volunteer to take the back journey. <laughs> but he must be awfully careful to realize that the real objective is to get the people across and set them free. If you dedicate yourself to ferrying people across, don't ask them to come back on the raft with you. Because you'll get overcrowded and people will think that the raft is the goal rather than the other shore. So when uh, I find this in, in actual practice, that when clergymen uh, do not ever ask for money, and uh, it's all right, you know, like a doctor who simply charges a fee, says, you come to me, you pay me so much. But the clergyman says, uh, he doesn't say pay me so much, he says, uh, we would like your pledge, your voluntary contribution. See, and then nobody knows what to give. That's the idea of the raft. Now then, the fourth noble truth uh, is called Marga. This word means path. And uh, the way of Buddhism is often called the Noble Eightfold Path. Because there are eight phases. I won't say steps because they're not sequential. Um, samyak is a very curious phrase. It doesn't mean right in our sense of correct. Sam is the same really as our word sum. Total. Complete. Uh, all inclusive. Uh, we might say, we might use the word integrated, as when we say a person has integrity. That a person who has integrity, we mean he's all of a piece. He's not divided against himself. So, in this sense of samyak, drishti, this is uh, related to the word darshan, which means a point of view or viewing. When you go to visit a great guru or teacher, you have darshan, you look at him. And you offer your reverence to him. This is darshan. Many senses of it. But it means simply to view. Look at the view. So the samyak darshan is the complete view. For example, let's take the constellation called the Big Dipper. We look at it from a fairly restricted zone in space and it always seems, whatever the season of the year, because we're so far away from it, that those stars in the Big Dipper are in the same position. But imagine looking at it from somewhere else in space altogether and those stars would not look like a Dipper. They'd be in another position. Now then, what is the true position of those stars? Don't you see there isn't one? 
because wherever you look the position alters you could say that the true situation of those stars is how they are looked at from all points of view all possible points of view inside the constellation looking outwards outside the constellation looking inwards from everywhere and everywhere but you see there is no such thing as the truth uh, the world in other words is not existing independently of those who witness it because the world is precisely the relationship between the world and its witnesses and so if there are no eyes in this world the Sun doesn't make any light nor do the stars so what is is a relationship you can for example prop up two sticks by leaning them against each other and they will stand but only by depending on each other take one away and the other falls so in Buddhism it is taught that everything in this universe depends on everything else that we have a kind of a huge network and this is called the doctrine of mutual interdependence all of it hangs on you and you hang on all of it just as the two sticks support each other and this is conveyed in a symbol which is called Indra's net imagine a multi-dimensional spider's web in the early morning covered with dewdrops and every dewdrop contains the reflection of all the other dewdrops and in each reflected dewdrop the reflections of all the other dewdrops in that reflection and so ad infinitum That is the Buddhist conception of the, of the universe in an image. The Japanese call that Jiji Muge. A Ji means a thing event, a happening. So between happening and happening, Mu, there is no Ge separation. Now, uh, so the first phase of the Eightfold Path has to do with one's view, understanding of the world. The second phase uh, has to do with action, how you act. Buddhist idea of ethics is based on expediency if you are engaged in the way of liberation and uh, you want to clarify your consciousness doing that is inconsistent with certain kinds of action so every Buddhist makes five vows five precepts and you may uh, perhaps have heard 
the Buddhist formula of taking what is called Panchasila, the five precepts. And uh, they take uh, what are called Tisarana, the three refuges and the five precepts. The refuges are the Buddha, the Dharma, the doctrine, and the Sangha, the fellowship of all those who are on the way. So uh, the priest, uh, the bhikkhu, the uh, Buddhist monk, and the lay people will chant the formula. Buddham saranangachami, Dangham saranangachami, Sangham saranangachami. Those are the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Then they take the five precepts. Panatipata veramani sikaparang samadhyami Adinadana veramani sikaparang samadhyami Kamesu michachara veramani sikaparang samadhyami Musavada veramani sikaparang samadhyami Kamesu Michahara Veramani Sura Maria Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami. So they take these five precepts. Panatipata. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking life. Adinadana. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking what is not given. Kamesu Michihara. I undertake the precept to abstain from exploiting the passions. Nusavada. I undertake the precept to abstain from falsifying speech. Sura Maria Majapamadatana. I undertake the precept to abstain from being intoxicated by Sura Maria and Majapamadatana, whatever they were. <laughs> uh, I presume toddy, uh, which is alcohol. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else it was. Nobody does know. Because you, you see, if you start killing people uh, or uh, taking life, you're in trouble. You set up an opposition, and you've got to become involved in taking care of it. If you start stealing, you worry people. You upset people's orientation in life because if you suddenly come into the back home for dinner and find somebody's stolen your table where are you going to serve dinner uh, if you exploit your passions um, it means that uh, when you're when you feel bored uh, and somehow that life is a little bit empty you say well now what, what are we going to do this evening let's go and get stuffed there are a lot of people who suffer from obesity are trying to simply fill their empty psyche by stuffing themselves with food. Well, it's the wrong cure. So, uh, likewise, Musavada, if you start telling lies to everybody, you know what happens when you start telling lies. You have to tell extra lies to cover up the first one, and you get into the most hopeless misunderstanding. Speech collapses. And, of course, the intoxication is the same problem as the exploitation of the passions so there's a purely kind of
practical, expedient, utilitarian approach to morals. There's another side to this which doesn't enter into the, into the precepts, which I will explain later. So, that's the third phase of the Eightfold Path. Then the, no, the second phase. Then the third phase has to do with your mind, with your state of consciousness. And this has to do with what we would ordinarily call meditation. There are the two final, the, the seventh and eighth uh, aspects of the path are called Samyak Shmriti and Samyak Samadhi. Shmriti means recollection. That's the best English word for it. Now, do you understand? The word recollect is to gather together what has been scattered. What is the opposite of remember? Obviously, dismember. What has been chopped up and scattered becomes remembered. So, in the Christian scheme, do this in remembrance of me. You see, the Christ has been sacrificed, chopped up. But the Mass is celebrated in remembrance. One of the old liturgies says the wheat which has been scattered all over the hills and grows up is gathered again into the bread. Remembered. Go back to your Hindu basis. The world is regarded as the dismemberment of the self, the Brahman, the Godhead. The one is dismembered into the many. So remembrance is realizing again that each single member of the many is really the one. So that's recollection. You can think of it too in another way, and it's really the same way if you think it through. I'm going to leave you with a few puzzles so that you can think them through and I won't explain them. But another way is to be recollected is to be completely here and now. Are you here and now? Are you really here? There was a wise old boy who used to give lectures on these things and he would get up and not say a word. He would just look at the audience. And he'd examine every person individually. And they'd all start feeling uncomfortable. He wouldn't say anything. He'd look at them all. And then he'd suddenly say, Wake up! You're all asleep. And if you don't wake up, I won't give you any lecture. <laughs> are you here recollected <coughs> see most people aren't they're bothering about yesterday and wondering what they're going to do tomorrow and aren't all here that's a definition of sanity to be all there so to be recollected is to be completely alert available for the present 
because that's the only place that you are ever going to be in. Yesterday doesn't exist, tomorrow never comes. There is only today. A great Sanskrit sort of invocation says, look to this day, for it is life. In its brief course lie all the realities of our existence. Yesterday is but a memory. Tomorrow is only a vision. Look well then to this day. Such is the salutation of the dawn. So, uh, Shmiti means then recollected this in the sense of being all here. In the sense that this is the only, only where there is. Then beyond that comes Samadhi. Again, notice the presence of this word S-A-M, Sam. Samadhi is uh, integrated consciousness in which there is no further separation between the knower and the known, the subject and the object. You are what you know. Now we think in the ordinary way that we are the witnesses of a constantly changing panorama of experience from which we as the knowers of this in a way stand aside and watch it. We think of our minds as a kind of tablet upon which experience writes a record and the tablet is always there although the experience goes by. And eventually the experience by writing so much on the tablet wears it out. It's all scratched away and you die, see? But actually, if you will investigate this, and you have to experiment on this because I cannot explain it to you in words, you can only find it out for yourself. There is no difference between the knower and the known. When you say, I see a sight, I feel a feeling, you are using redundant language. I see implies the sight. I feel implies the feeling. Do you hear sounds? No. You just hear. Or you can say, there are sounds. Either one will do. So you will find, if you thoroughly investigate the process of experiencing, that the experiencing is the same as the experiencer. And this is the state of samadhi. I put it originally in this form, that the organism and the environment are a single behavioral process. So likewise is the knower and the known. So you, as someone who is aware and all that you are aware of, 
is one process. That is the state of samadhi. And you get to that state by the practice of meditation. Every Buddha figure practically is seen in the sitting posture of meditation. which is sitting down quietly and being aware of all that goes on without comment, without thinking about it. And when you stop categorizing, verbalizing, talking to yourself inside your head, naturally the separations between for example, knower and known, self and other, simply vanish. Can you point to the difference between my five fingers? Where will you put your finger if you want to point to the difference? You see, the idea of difference is an abstraction. It just isn't there in the physical world. Of course, that's not saying that the fingers are joined like a duck's claws with a web. But that it's just that. They're not the same. That's an idea. They're not different. That's an idea. And these ideas just aren't here. See? You can't point to it. You can't put your finger on it. Get then to the state of affairs where you see the world free from concepts. That's what Buddhists mean by void. When they say uh, the world is basically, uh, they use the phrase shunya. That has a meaning of like empty, void. Everything is shunya. This has certainly also the meaning of, of anitya, of transience, but basically it means <coughs> you can't catch the world in a conceptual net. Just if you try to catch water in a net, it all slips through. If you try to tie up water in a paper package or grab it in your hands, it all flows through. So, shunya, it doesn't really mean that the world itself that the energy of the world is nothing at all. It means that no concept of it is valid. <coughs> you cannot make any one idea or belief or doctrine or system or theory tie the thing up. So if you go through this and you get completely blown out and released and are in the state of nirvana. <coughs> for no reason that anybody can explain, there, just as for example, as I pointed out, when you see that you can't change yourself, you can't lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, you then get a new access of psychic energy. So in exactly the same way, when you get to this state of nirvana, there wells up from within you what the Buddhists call karuna or compassion. The sense that 
you aren't different from everybody else. Everybody else's suffering is your suffering. And so this tremendous sense of solidarity with all other beings arises. So that he who reaches nirvana doesn't, as it were, withdraw into a sort of isolated peace, but is always coming back into the world, into the difficulties, into the problems of life, uh, in compassion for everyone else. You can't be saved alone. Because you're not alone. You are the whole cosmos.